Hi everyone, uh, this is Andy Liu again with the second half of a two-part interview with Jairus Banaji and myself and Sheetold Chabria. Um, so uh, once again, there's a longer version of this interview with more notes added after the fact that's on the Borderlines website, so I do recommend you check that out. Uh, just to kind of set the context for the second half of the interview, uh, in the first half we talked about you know Jairus' childhood, his intellectual milieu in the 1970s, and we finished by talking about this kind of major argument of his, that in a lot of places in the world, such as South Asia, but not just South Asia, um, capitalist labor could, could take on many different forms, not just the classic prototype of urban industrial proletarians, but also, for instance, um, the indebted peasantry who produce crops and uh, return them as interest to the local moneylender, but thereby produce surplus value for capital, right? So the second half of this interview is going to take off uh, from that question, from that answer, where um, Sheetal is going to ask, you know, how did that theoretical innovation translate into Jairus' own politics, his own activities as a labor organizer in the 80s and 90s, and so on. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the book, A Brief History of Commercial Capitalism, talk about this argument Jairus makes um, in terms of the transformation from commercial to industrial capitalism at the turn of the century and into the 21st century, and how it seems like commercial capitalism has made a comeback with globalization and flexible accumulation and those sorts of things. Um, we're going to talk about why studying the history of capitalism is useful for understanding politics today and understanding the world today. Um, talk a little bit about the you know the rise of the history of capitalism as a as a as a kind of trending topic um, in the U.S. Academy recently. And finally, we end with a question and a pretty long and interesting answer about Jairus's views on politics today in India and South Asia more broadly. We get into a discussion about you know fascism, the far right, BJP and Modi and politics in India today. So um, I hope you keep listening to get to that final part of the interview. Okay, uh, on to the interview. Can I just ask a quick, um, just a quick follow-up? So having sort of discovered or established that surplus value could be extracted from peasants, um, you know, through debt and whatnot, did that have an impact on how you positioned yourself as a sort of labor organizer? I mean, did it, did it, did you then think, okay, well, so then the way we organize labor has to go beyond you know, the factory and the trade unions or not? No, not at all. These were kind of discrete parts of one's mind. <laughs> um, it, I, I, as I say, I was still a, a strong Uberist in the late 70s and um, believed in this, in this vision that left politics had everything to do with the self-emancipation of the working class, understood strictly as an industrial working class. Yeah. So even though uh, the category wage labor was far more generalized than just industrial labor or you know factory work um, and and was there it was sort of implicit in the whole argument about the Deccan peasantry mm -hmm. uh, and implicit in the distinction between the formal and the real subsumption of labor all right which was applied in the partly applied in the kind of Deccan peasantry paper even though all of that was true uh, politically um, one still continued to see not just the industrial working class, but 
the kind of more modern sections of the industrial working class as the heart of kind of left politics and revolutionary politics. So if there was a subject, you know, in, in kind of history and revolutionary politics, it was the working class in this narrowly defined, almost kind of surge Malay sense of workers in advanced industry, advanced technological sectors. And just to be fair, I mean, the most exciting forms of struggle one actually witnessed at the time were in these kinds of plants. Yeah. You know, I mean, it wasn't in small scale industry and so on. It wasn't in textiles. Um, it was precisely in places like Hindustan Lever and so on that you saw uh, what I thought of as a new working class engaged in quite exciting forms of class struggle and very sophisticated ways of disrupting the plant and and organizing industrial action and bringing management to their needs. And remember, the Hindustan labor management was the most ruthless, the best organized, the most ruthless management anywhere in the private sector. So there was, I always believed that it was management culture which shaped the culture of the union. And you could see this perfectly in being demonstrated by the way the Hindustan labor employees union had to be able to match the sophistication of their management if they were going to survive. And there was a change in leadership at the end of the 70s young, two young uh, Christian workers called uh, Bennett de Costa and Franklin de Souza, uh, who had gone through the kind of the, Christ, the radical Christian student wing uh, of the well, Christ, some sort of Christian socialist movement or whatever, who had gone through the training sessions there. When they got employment in, in Lever, they eventually took over the union at the end of the 70s and introduced a completely new style of, of militancy and union leadership. And that was the time that we began to work seriously, interact with, with employees unions in Bombay. And we got to know both Bennett and Franklin and discovered through most of the early 80s how sophisticated the, their styles of industrial action were. As I say, I largely attribute that to the kind of nature of management itself. Yeah. That there's a, this kind of dialectic or reciprocity between management and labor in, in the yeah. way that each reacts to the other. So going back to your going back to the question, these were very discrete parts of one's kind of mental geography. There was this idea that wage labor was far more generalized, both historically and in the contemporary world than Marxists would, you know, formalist kind of definitions of wage labor would allow for. And then there was this idea that it's the kind of elite sections of the industrial working class that should be the, you know, should be the kind of vanguard of left politics and so on. Uh, and no attempt to think about agencies other than this sort of elite working class agency, right? Uh, what would agency mean in, in terms of peasants, for example? Today we see striking demonstrations of this in the way the farmers have organized their movement, you know, besieging Delhi uh, with their demands for the repeal, for the scrapping of these farm laws. I mean, that's just an amazing movement, the way they've organized it. Yeah. Um, now, these are precisely the kind of people we would have classified as peasants or middle peasants or kulaks and so on and so forth in, in the 70s. Um, and yet they, they, they come up with this amazing movement in 2020, which um, one wouldn't have anticipated in any way earlier on, because simply because we believe the peasants weren't a class in quite the same sense as I didn't have the sort of cohesion, structures of cohesion that the working class was supposed to have as a result of the nature of production itself, you know, that Production unifies the working class. Uh, right. Production disperses uh, agricultural. They uh, were the, the peasants would be in themselves in, in in itself, but not for itself. Is what you're no, saying. The peasants even worse than that. The peasants would have been a sack of potatoes, <laughs> as, as Marx described them. 
yeah, they're yeah. anything but, by the way, they're anything but. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so has, your thinking yeah. has changed, it sounds like, uh, on this question. Well, I mean, simply because the other big thing that happened, the great watershed that happened from the 70s and certainly by the 80s was that capital reorganized big in big time, broke up large plants, large production units, uh, started to set up or, or parallel production facilities, outsourced extensively, uh, subcontracted, and just broke the backbone of, a, of an otherwise very well-organized union movement. So by the time you come to the, to the kind of early 90s, which is when the economic reforms or the new economic policies are announced, you already have a severely debilitated trade union movement in Bombay. I mean, you don't need you don't need um, the um, economic liberalization of the early '90s to finish it off because it's it's already kind of on 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 the back foot. It's it's already in retreat. But by the time you come to '92 and the economic reforms, uh, workers are taking VRS, that's voluntary retirement schemes, and you know on a large scale, and plants are disappearing from Bombay. So the real estate people are moving in, buying up the land uh, and then constructing all these fancy apartments uh, through the suburbs, industrial suburbs. So the whole geography of the city is changing in a dramatic way by then. So this huge restructuring of capital, which takes place in the 70s and 80s and from then on, so to speak, partly uh, destroys the centrality of, of an organized working class to one's notions of uh, of politics, of course, it's also part of a kind of restructuring of, of 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 the way capital interacts globally, so that you have the construction of global supply chains going on in the in the eighties, and um, that, therefore workers are emerging in other parts of the world, yeah, especially in the Far East, uh, in South Korea, and so on. Yeah. So your new your new work is this investigation of commercial capitalism. You would say is self consciously thinking about precedents for what's happening in the 21st century as well. No, it, it didn't begin like that. Okay. Um, no, I mean, I, I would have, you know, it would have been great if I had thought <laughs> of it in those terms. I only read uh, Nelson Lichtenstein's paper, The Return of Merchant Capitalism, recently, a few mm. months back. I mean, I hadn't read it, otherwise it would have been in the bibliography mm. because it's it's so relevant. I mean, he, it's mm. a way of like updating the whole debate um, but that simply wasn't at the back of my mind. As I say, um, my my problem was how do we write a history of capitalism? If you call yourself a Marxist, you have all these categories before you. How do you use them to write a history of capitalism, right? Yeah. And it always struck me as paradoxical that Marxists above all should have been writing a history of capitalism, but weren't. I mean, whereas you had yeah. the Annal School and then various continental historians and so on writing histories of capitalism, Whenever a Marxist attempted to write a history of capitalism, it would come out as a wretched piece of work on the whole. Yeah, uh, I, I won't mention names here, but or it would be so pedagogical that, like you know, Dobbs' studies in the development of capitalism, is or, in some sense an attempt to create a basis for writing a history of capitalism. But because Dobbs is so yeah. ambiguous about merchant capital, he's not completely dismissive dismissive of it. But he is ambiguous about it. Therefore, he kind of destroys the potential that otherwise yeah. lies in in that kind of investigation. Why? Why do you think it's important for a Marxist to be interested in the history of capital? Why isn't it just you know we should join a party or join a a, a labor organization? Why do we have to think about things that happened two hundred years ago? 
uh, for Marxists? Well, because they have a con because that has a contemporary relevance. I mean, it affects the way you understand capitalism today. Um, having a clearer sense of its history gives you gives you some sense of what's going on today as well. And when I was looking through your PDF, um, you know, the kind of areas you mapped out there, I was struck by this the point about re real and formal subsumption. If you could kind of ask me that at this stage, I'd tell you why I think. What was that question about? You know, I think yeah, she thought. I guess we were, Andy and I had sort of exchanged some emails earlier and because I was trying to clarify whether you thought that, first of all, whether the distinction between formal and real subsumption is significant and is your argument that real subsumption is not a logical endpoint of something like capitalist development, meaning one could continue to have what we would call formal subsumption for quite a long time that wouldn't then transform into real subsumption? I mean, yes and no. I mean, you can, I mean, formal subsumption continues to characterize all forms of capitalist production, which are not based on, on at least in a minimal sense on the introduction of machinery into the labor process, right? So formal subsumption is, is, is probably in numerical terms more widespread um, than, um, than real subsumption, but but the no part of it relates to the to my understanding of real subsumption, which is that it's not just something that happens in the labor process, although that's how Marx argues it. Um, it's actually the relationship between labor and capital at a social level and a political level. So that, you know, a lot of what the Frankfurt School was driving at, it seems to me, is about the way modern capitalism actually involves a wholesale subsumption of labor into capital. Capital, not just as economic capital, but capital as the state and capital as the society organized by that state and by capital itself. Right. So it has to be seen as a kind of more totalizing relation between between labor and capital. And this is the sense of real subsumption that is at play in the in the operaisti, uh, you know, and, and their work in Italy, in, you know, in the in the late 60s. And, throughout the 60s, in fact. Um, Quaderni Rossi, one of the kind of best early kind of workerist journals from, from the early 60s in Italy, um, is largely arguing this kind of position about, you know, um, real subsumption needs to be expanded into understood not and understood beyond the labor process. You know, obviously, the labor process is the foundation for the mm -hmm. subordination of labor to capital. But beyond that, capital begins to kind of organize a society which subsumes labor in this more comprehensive sense. Like the culture right. industry, like the culture industry concepts from the Frankfurt School, no? Yes, I mean, but yeah, in a sense, the way Fordism could be extended to something beyond the labor process, right? To the way consumption is organized, um, to cultural domination and so on and so forth. Just going back to the question of commercial capital and industrial capital and where I see the rupture coming in the book, it's not very upfront, but towards the end, there's this suggestion that the subordination of commercial to industrial capital doesn't actually take place in the 17th, 18th, early 19th century, as Marx seems to suggest that it, you know, it projects it back. It actually takes place when you have multinationals emerging towards the end of the 19th century and organizing and integrating vertically, integrating forward into their own sales networks and so on. 
Now, for example, there's an interesting transition taking place here. As late as the 1920s, when international firms are beginning to export, well, international in the sense that they'll become international, but firms, industrial firms are beginning to, to export um, into third world markets and so on. Uh, initially, they rely on British firms. Many of them are managing agencies or typical kind of UK-based mercantile firms to handle sales for them, right? But what's so interesting is that they rapidly become disillusioned with this so that the mining and oil companies, American oil and mining companies that move into South America, try this initially and then they become so dissatisfied with the services that are offered that they decide to organize their own sales network. So they dispense with the services of merchant capital here. And likewise, India, by the by the late 20s and 30s, they're no longer um, relying on the managing agencies as to handle the distribution of their products uh, or as their kind of sales agencies and so on. They just abandoned those contracts, uh, partly because the these agencies are unable to commit capital to the kind of training of technical technical staff that would be required to handle distribution in a serious way. They're not willing to do that. So it seems to me there is a transition period in the 20s when two very different kinds of capital, namely the multinational on the one hand and the managing agency on the other or the mercantile firm on the other, intersect and overlap. And they actually have a functional relationship with each other. But the rapidity with which industrial capital in the, in, in the sense of the multinational abandons merchant capital is quite striking. They, I mean, they find that these guys, they can't actually handle the relationships well. Partly also because they're not willing to commit themselves to just one, to one firm. They, they'd rather service a whole range of firms in the same industrial sector. And that would lead to conflict of interest. And so, you know, big companies like Shell or Unilever are not interested in perpetuating the relationship anymore. They want complete yeah. commitment from, from that firm to only that one product. Yeah. I mean, when we when you gave that talk a few weeks ago at NYU, you had said that you felt no one had looked at this issue um, very closely. You did mention, you know, Chandler's famous book on this. Are you saying that Chandler's book is still inadequate, perhaps because it's too U.S. centric? It doesn't get at these global transformations uh, the way that you think, you know, someone else, you know, a, a true like global historian should should try to to, to kind of theorize this transition. Yeah, I think I think Marxists need to take that kind of literature more seriously. I think if there is an industrial revolution of any sort, it doesn't lie with the invention of steam and so on and so forth early on. I think it lies here in the in the emergence of these new capitalist firms, uh, which have the power to organize world economy, right? Right. If you look at the last quarter of the 20th century, the bulk of international trade, a very large proportion of it, up to 40% of it is just intra-firm trade, right? But of course, organized now or structured now through these very complex webs of supply chains and, and so on. Um, so the kind of these vertical, vertical connections between lead firms on the one side and contractors and, and outsourced firms and on the other. Um, it's a kind of dense web of relationships today. But the importance of Chandler is that he manages to define 
from a Marxist point of view, it seems to me it's it's his work which is beginning to define the features of a, of large scale industrial capitalism. Yeah. Uh, the textile capitalism that you find in Britain in the 19th century doesn't, in to my mind, connote large scale industry in in, in Marxist sense. There's yeah. a dissonance between Marxist theoretical understanding of industrial capitalism and the reality that he's actually relying on. For that matter, even Owen is, is saying the same thing as Marx. He's saying it earlier than Marx. He's saying it more emphatically than Marx. He's talking about these kind of gigantic combinations that are emerging under capitalism and so on. But he's talking about it in the 1830s. Yeah. So there is this tension between your ability to predict or foresee something and the actual empirical reality, which is a, a pale shadow of that. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a kind of reversal between yeah. thought and reality that they are anticipating. This is equally true of the Grundrisse. There are all those fascinating passages in the Grundrisse on fixed capital and on labor stepping to the side of the production process. Marx makes statements or makes claims of that sort in the Grundrisse, which raise all kinds of questions about the theory of value then. If labor steps to the side of the production process, what do we do with his understanding of value? But there are all those passages in the Grundrisse towards the end of the Grundrisse on fixed capital, uh, which, which it seems to me anticipate automation, you know, in a, in a very striking way. And, uh, and again, they're kind of theoretical images of a future that hasn't actually transpired when they're written. Yeah. Marx is writing those notebooks in the 1850s, yet he's describing a situation that will only come true in the 1920s and 30s, you know, with the yeah. huge flow processes in, in the German steel industry and so on and so forth. So this is quite remarkable ability of thought to anticipate reality which hasn't actually emerged at that stage uh, as the kind of base for speculation. Yeah, that's fascinating. But do you think, so given the pushing back of the emergence of industrial capitalism, is industrial capitalism then short-lived? I mean, I, because, you know, I, I think it's Lenin that talks about the, com, the combine, the way in which financiers actually control vertical supply chain integration by the 1920s and 30s. Um, I mean, so isn't that quite short-lived, that that period of industrial capitalism's dominance? Well, I mean, the way, the way industrial capitalism organized itself after the First World War and down to the 1960s, maybe, right? Mass production, in other words, mass production and what a lot of Marxists simply call Fordism, right? Maybe, conceivably, I don't know, arguably, that might be short-lived simply because of the diseconomies of scale involved in confronting large concentrated workforces. Yep. The big lesson that capital draws from the radicalization of the 60s um, is that it doesn't pay to have to have to confront workers when they're massed together in individual workplaces, that it's it's sort of um, it's not economical to to expose expose yourself to industrial actions which can paralyze the plant and especially to the degree that automation progresses and uh, plants become vulnerable to even the smallest forms of disruption as as with the refineries and so on then it makes no sense to allow them to have that kind of bargaining power so this is an offensive or an attack that unfolds on at various levels one of which is to simply de-unionize the labor market uh, to start depending more extensively on on casual contract forms of employment and so on and so forth. The, the other, of course, is more directly to restructure production so you don't have large factories, um, large enterprises uh, of the kind that you had up to the 60s. 
So there's a kind of partial movement away from the mass production model. But um, there's a brilliant critique of by a guy called Chris Smith, yeah, of those who push this argument too far. In other words, Pure and Sable and so on, the argument, you know, the romanticism of the return yeah. of craft, the return of craft labor and so on and so forth. There's a very good piece by by him which shows you that it's a bit more complicated than simply simply talking about the end of mass production and the start of kind of mm -hmm. you know whether flexible automation means the return of craft craft labor etc but not to not to kind of press the point so so far that that you actually miss the nuance and complexity of, of late capitalism in the, in the late 20th century so my position would lie somewhere there that we, we begin to begin to see a reconfiguration of capitalist economy in the last quarter of the 20th century, where all these strands that have been individually present earlier are somehow being drawn together. So you have a kind of explosion of the financial markets through the you know the bond you know kind of big bond market explosion in, in the US in the in the 80s once Reagan comes to power. Uh, bond trading takes off in a very spectacular way, then that leads to derivatives trading, mm -hmm. uh, and that ultimately kind of culminates in the financial crash of 2007-8. Yeah. So you have uh, a trajectory of finance capital in these new forms on the one side, then you've got Walmart and the return of merchant capitalism in Liechtenstein's sense. Yeah. Uh, Walmart then kind of breaks its, uh, you know, breaks the kind of uh, all the kind of numerous American enterprises that it's relied on, just moves away from all that and shifts production to China in a big way. So you have supply chain capitalism being organized globally. Uh, throughout the kind of last two decades of the 20th century, that leads to huge job losses in the U.S., which in turn fuels the kind of rise of Trump. Um, <laughs> you know, two decades yeah. later. Yeah. Um, and then you've got you've got industry itself. You've got manufacturing being organized through supply chains, in 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 quite complex ways. So you've got these kind of um, buyer-driven chains that Jereffi talks about, as well as the the kind of producer-driven chains, yeah, yeah, and um, you can't assimilate one to the other because each of them has a has its own kind of particular structure and characteristics. But the producer-driven chains, in some ways, can be can be operated. They don't, they don't have to be international. They can be operated domestically, which is what we began to see in India, for example, in the 1980s, with all these large industrial firms which had production in cities like Bombay, now relying on supply chains. Um, which are go back into the hinterland. Yeah. Just going back to the point, therefore, it seems to me that industrial capital in a strong sense is something that only emerges in the in a strong sense of it, right? Only emerges in the 1880s and 90s. And then kind of uh, with with the post-war period, the post-war boom, basically you see the expansion of this form of capital internationally, which is when foreign direct investment really explodes. Uh, after the Second World War, after the end of the Second World War. And that is what fuels the boom in post-war capitalism until, of course, then you have an over-accumulation of capital again, and then you've got worker combativity, uh, undermining profits, and, and so on and so forth. And then you have a new cycle of restructuring taking place from the 70s onwards. So that book I referred to, Beyond Multinationalism, actually starts with the restructuring of capital, of how large firms like Philips and so on are just... Um, removing jobs in a very big way yeah um, you know job losses and so on um yeah there's so many parallels i've been thinking about this myself it seems like the 1970s there was this huge 
efflorescence of interest in capitalism and Marxism. Um, at least in the United States, it seems like the 08 crisis has produced something similar. Uh, not necessarily Marxists, but you know, you've probably heard of the historians, historical discipline, being interested in the history of capitalism, uh, kind of noticeably anti-Marxist or non-Marxist in the United States context or, or ambivalently Marxist. Um, do you have any, have you been paying attention to the sort of discourse of, you know, primarily, I guess, US and now increasingly European historians being interested in the history of capitalism? And do you have a, do you have well, a I think, I think it's a, it's a good movement. Um, whether it's done by people who are self-consciously Marxist or not, uh, partly, it's partly good because first of all, it raises the whole issue of the history of capitalism in a, in a central way. And secondly, it's very diverse internally, you know, yeah. it's not all in one particular form. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the work that's being done broadly under history of capitalism or histories of capitalism and so on, um, you know, so a lot of it is contemporary uh, and, you know, about the 20th century and so on. And, and uh, in fact, the smaller part of it actually is historical in the sense that you're not, you're not reading the history of capitalism by going yeah. too far. Back. Yeah. Maybe with the exception of Sven's work on cotton textiles and so on that sort of ranges historically but uh, a lot of the work that's that's being published under 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 that label you know whether they are a school or not i don't know but is is quite diverse internally and slavery is 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 is, is, a, is a, one of the major, major undercurrents in this you know re rethinking slavery and reintegrating it into a history of capitalism and earlier you i, th I thought i thought actually a question we might want to ask that kind of is related to a lot of this you mentioned this choice of yours not to use the word origins, but to use the word rise. And uh, you know, in a recent review that I know you read, um, the author uh, reviewing your book had kind of pointed out that you also, unlike let's say uh, Robert Brenner or Ellen Wood, uh, who have very clear explanation of the origins of capitalism, you, you know, this reviewer says you do not have a straightforward answer to that. Yeah. Um, I just wanna hear like, what is your response to that? I mean, that yes, obviously, in, in one sense, that's obviously correct, because I, I'm not obsessed about the question of uh, origins. I mean, it's, it suggests something punctual. It suggests a point which you're actually defining, like the English countryside in the, in the 16th century. I mean, Jane Whittle actually did a critique of Brenner, which shows that, um, you know, agrarian capitalism in Britain has its own, has a chronology that doesn't fit so easily into Brenner's framework, right? So yeah. a lot of her book on agrarian capitalism is at least implicitly a critique of Brenner's chronology of English capitalism. But it makes no sense because if you see capitalism to begin with in, in the first instance as an international system, right, then it makes no sense to say actually it's born in this particular sector of this particular national economy when you don't even have a national economy in any modern viable modern sense, right? Yeah. Um, and why? Because oh, you begin to see leases being handled in a, you know, in a new way and so on and so forth. No, it makes no sense. I mean, I mean the, the ambiguity in, in Brenner's best work is Merchants and Revolution. And it's so obvious that he's, he's trying to fit that into the framework of the debate by saying that the progressive sections of the aristocracy are capitalists, all right, because they have this base in land. But no, these joint stock companies have nothing to do with capitalism. On the other hand, when he talks about the new merchants and their investments in the Caribbean, then they again become like sugar capitalists. He talks about sugar capitalism. Now, 
why why only sugar capitalism why not the capitalism of the east india companies you know i mean yeah. how is that any different i think maybe he thinks ah oh, well these are kind of um these enterprises involve plantations um you know and whereas we're dealing more with something like a putting out system maybe when you're talking about procurement of textiles in a south asian context um they're relying on brokers they're relying on rich indigenous merchants um he he seems to he's uncomfortable with the idea that we can talk about capitalism in that context or about these companies as capitalists but of course they're capitalists i mean um your coastal warehouse firms in china in the china trade are precisely i mean that, that happens on a chinese scale this is happening on an international scale uh, they're both depending on supply chains that are um defined by these levels of the hierarchy um as i say you can conceptualize that as a, as a circulation of capital you know well, can i just ask maybe what will be an obvious follow up question i guess is if capitalism is fundamentally international in question and in practice right i just really want to know what well, how do you what do you think of the drain of wealth thesis or the question of colonialism um, um in the subcontinent well there obviously was a drain of wealth the point is that much of the surplus value that's being extracted by mercantile firms in say the 19th century from say a country like india uh, is coming from households um and a lot of that is unremunerated labor meaning it does it's not actually overtly paid for uh, so when i repeatedly refer to macaulay's uh, analogy between the between the contracts that are being signed between the indigo planters and the peasants say in maybe in bihar okay uh the analogy between that and the contract between the capitalist and the worker in say in an english setting he draws the he draws this analogy and i refer to it at least twice in my work that's quite a perceptive um, amazing thing for a 19th century thinker to say that there's a, there's this you know he says it's like the relationship between on the contract between the capitalist and the worker um the important thing there is that the peasant at the other end uh, is is part of a household okay so it's not the disconnection between kind of industrial wage labor on the one side and the workers the workers family and reproduction mechanisms on the other um isn't so obvious in this case there's no disconnection of that sort since the household is largely subsidizing the reproduction of labor power and a lot of the labor insofar as it involves women and children um is you know automatically unremunerated i mean quite regardless of whether the actual head of household is being paid sufficiently for whatever work he is doing quite regardless of that there's this vast reservoir of labor within the rural household or family that is being drawn upon uh by capital in these complex and mediated ways uh and if you see the scale of profits which are being repatriated to britain um you know from places like bihar and bengal and so on yeah there is a drain of wealth there's no doubt about that except to understand its real meaning you have to see it as a capitalist relationship as a as you know as part of the accumulation of the total social capital somewhere else yeah I mean, Sheetal, is your question more like, is drain of wealth as a nationalist 
argument the best way to understand it as opposed to something that's not so nationalist about India versus England, but about you know the you know, the the sort of extractive classes versus the laboring classes. I mean, uh, right? Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, I I thought Jairus was maybe saying the latter by saying it's fundamentally a capitalist relation, yeah. um, right? Which is not exactly the way the nationalist framing of it goes. Yeah. But my, my, my description is more specific because I actually refer to combined accumulation, you know, in, in, in the book so that all these kind of wealthy so-called native merchants, right, who are organizing the supply chain on behalf of the joint stock companies, etc., or on behalf of these various private partnerships um, are also making money out of it. Yeah. Yeah. They're expanding their own businesses. So combined accumulation or, you know, basically a symbiotic link between different levels of capital. Yeah. So I mean, that, it, that undercuts the nationalist, the purely nationalist kind of critique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other question, I was thinking about this myself, uh, doing my own research, I'm sure Sheetala did as well, sort of, if we take your framework, very internationalist, globalist, a, a, a sort of almost abstract approach to thinking about capital, um, this raises, I think, uh, for some people, it raised the question of, well, then what, what does colonialism or imperialism matter, right? If you kind of dissolve sort of those political distinctions and it becomes just about, you know, the capitalists and the, and the workers. Um, is that something that you've had to sort of wrestle with in terms of your own? No, I mean, obviously, obviously it matters. It's, it's almost like saying, well, since fascism is a form of capitalist rule, why would fascism matter? Obviously it matters because it, you know, in if if there is a drain of wealth, then to some degree, external forces are impoverishing these territories, whether those territories are organized as sovereign powers or not. I mean, China is organized as a sovereign power. India isn't at that stage. Uh, but there is a the drain of wealth simply means that uh, there's exploitation occurring, um, whether or not you commit yourself to a notion like unequal exchange. I mean, I, I tend to be quite sympathetic to the idea because I think that's the only way of understanding what Probrzezinski meant by the plundering of petty production. You know, Probrzezinski argued that the main form of primitive accumulation is merchant capital plundering petty commodity production. All right. That's the main form. Now, a lot of economic sectors could be kind of mapped onto that particular model, right, of merchant capital plundering petty commodity production. But what is, for a Marxist, what does the term plunder mean, you know? If you ask that, then someone like Arigi Emanuel is actually trying to give it theoretical substance by saying this is a relationship of unequal, ex of unequal exchange. That surplus value is being transferred um, from one to the other, right? Now, again, there are people who will then, then sort of dismiss the whole argument because it seems to have the implication that therefore the industrial working classes in the, in the North or in the West are somehow implicated in the exploitation of colonial labor. But the answer to that is surely that you have to construct solidarity between workers in different parts of the world. That's the answer. The answer is not, well, I won't accept this theoretical understanding because it has uncomfortable political implications, right? Um, Lenin was grappling with this issue and, and conveniently you talk about a labor aristocracy and kind of exempt, exempt the rest of the working class from this. So yeah, I mean, I, I would tend to I would tend to see that there is a Marxist. In other words, there is a Marxist version of the drain theory, and it's called unequal exchange. 
I guess I, I was curious, given all your experience and your study, what, what are some, what's some advice you would give young organizers or young Marxists, um, you know, about what can be done in India specifically today? You mean politically or do you mean politically as, as academics and intellectuals? Oh, no, not as academics. <laughs> well, I, I think to encourage um, a deeper understanding of democracy, right? And encourage um, cultures of cultures of opposition and resistance and understand that the roots of fascism lie in in things like the family, for example, in patriarchy, in the nature, the quality of education, of, of, of school education, in the way children's minds are being formed or molded and so on. Uh, and in these cultures of deference and subordination, which are so deep rooted in, in South Asia, whether it's Pakistan or India or, or mm -hmm. Sri Lanka, or for that matter, Myanmar, right? Um, so basically uh, a politics that contests fascism along a very wide front. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't discussed fascism, but some of the work I've done recently is about that, you know, the translation of Rosenberg's essay. Um, and it seems to me that, that both Rosenberg and Reich were pointing to absolutely fundamental features of whether you talk about it as classic fascism or neo-fascism or whatever, fundamental features of that political reaction, which have to do with the way mass, a mass base is constructed for these right-wing parties. And that's a problem that's still very much alive in the US, obviously, given the millions and millions of people who voted for Trump. Yeah. Um, so that even if Trump has been defeated and is a loser, <laughs> uh, Trump is, is a massive residue or legacy of that period, which, you know, people on the left in, in, in the US have to confront. There's another point I want to make, you know, I refer to the platform tendency, which begins from the sense that the left is in crisis and will not will not progress, will stagnate and decline. Um, well, one of the big omissions or lacunae in that kind of politics is, is the lack of a cultural politics, right? Um, the inability to address issues about the family and so on. And the emergence of feminism in that sense was was filling that kind of gap within the traditional left and uh, raising new ways of thinking about social relations and about domination and so on. So I think you can't have a Marxism today which isn't feminist. Uh, you, you can't have a socialist politics which doesn't integrate some kind of Marxism on one side and, and feminism on the other or some kind of feminism on the other. So if the new politics is going to be viable, it has to be totalizing. It has to be intersectional. It has to be able to address all these kinds of issues and identities and so on simultaneously. It's like a simultaneous equation being solved, right? Um, and about the central question of where is the working class? It's all over the world today. No society, no, no society in history has had a wider spread of wage labor and, um, and wage domination, wage employment and so on than contemporary society. But I'm raising the issue of, of what it means to be a kind of active, transparent and imaginative sort of socialist left. Um, and it means the ability to contest capitalism at all these levels in all these ways. Yeah. Uh, instead of standing on the sideline and simply denouncing the X or Y. And the other thing that I, I'm quite unhappy about is the kind of stand that 
traditional sectors of the left, like the CPM and so on, take on foreign capital, because that's like falling straight into the trap. Reliance has always avoided any any kind of financial collaboration with or equity collaboration with with foreign firms, but always. On the other hand, Reliance thinks in dollar terms. Reliance accesses the capital market internationally. So if there were a real threat of, say, in takeover by a foreign firm of an Indian firm, it would never be able to go through. There is no way in which um, a large international firm would be able to take over any substantial, I mean, a hostile takeover, any substantial Indian company. There's no way it could happen. So that's that's the rules of the game in India. It's been fixed in that way, you know. Um, you don't have capitalism in the modern sense of of an unfettered market and corporate control. You just don't have that. Yeah. Um, and so you're saying the CPM follows this sort of red herring and distracts from real issues. Is that the claim? Yeah, I think this. this I mean, it's CPM goes for the safest targets. That's what I'm saying, right? The safest targets are the are the international firms. Uh-huh. From a Marxist point of view, the international firms are more progressive than all other sectors of capital. <laughs> from a Marxist point of view, yeah, yeah. simply simply because they organize international economy, right? Um, but I mean that's yeah. So obviously, it hardly needs to be said. If if Marx were alive, he wouldn't be reacting with horror to the existence of international firms. It's just natural that this is the face that capitalism will take. Mm-hmm. But the left goes for the for the softest targets, right? Because there's this kind of natural xenophobia about MNCs and so on and so forth. So you you try and stoke that xenophobia further, further and give it a kind of political coloring by saying, you know, we're being exploited by export. What about the, the hard targets are precisely the, these big corporate groups that have gained the most in the last 20 years from, you know, uh, the, those are the hard targets. And there, as I say, investigative journalism is crucial. If you're gonna ask answer questions like why has X or Y group expanded so very rapidly in the last 10 years? You have to be able to investigate that. Uh, and I'll give you a small example, if you if you don't mind carrying on for a minute. Yeah. Uh, I made an intervention at a Confederation of Indian Industry meeting in 2003, early 2003, which where Modi was the guest speaker, right? Now the Confederation of Indian Industry is the kind of leading association, business association of, of industrial houses in the country. It, mainly kind of represents Western India business, but Modi was the was the key speaker. He came about two and a half hours late. Everyone was waiting, kind of, you know, looking at their watch all the time because time is money in this kind of this sector of business. So they were wondering why he's wasting their time and so on. Finally he landed up and um, I made an intervention at that meeting. Um, Insaniat managed to kind of infiltrate the meeting and uh, all the women in our organization were identified and thrown out. But characteristically, no one asked me for my ID. So I managed to stay on in the meeting. And at the end, I made an intervention um, at that meeting. And I was thrown out of it, physically kind of removed and then put in some local police station for a few hours until the meeting was over. And Modi was going to have dinner with the Ambani's that evening at their Bombay residence and so on. Now, the reason I bring this up is that the only Muslim businessman of any note who made, who asked any question at this meeting. And look, this is less than a year after the Gujarat violence, right? Less than a year after it. This is something like early February 2003 was Khorakiwala. Um, And guess what he asked about? He asked, how will you ensure labor peace in Gujarat? Labor peace. Yes, industrial peace. He's talking to Modi. 
All right, Gujarat has been through this wave of violence, of hideous communal violence, with over a thousand people killed in the course of it. Yeah. And the only significant Muslim businessman at that meeting, when he has a chance to ask a question, asks, how yeah. will you ensure industrial peace in Gujarat? Right? I mean, that shows you the state of the business class in this country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nothing could better demonstrate that. The other, the other side of it, of course, is that there is a a culture of democracy that still survives to some degree. I mean, we saw it in the anti-CA protests a year or two ago, huge, huge demonstrations and so on. Students were very active in that. And then, of course, you see it in the farmers movement today, you know, uh, a movement largely organized by the farmers unions. Um, so that's that's the resilience of democracy in India. Then on the one hand, you have the atrophy of democracy in a state sense, in a political sense, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you have the resilience of a culture of democracy in the sense that people are not willing to give it up so easily. That's that's so. I don't think ending on a bleak note would be fair. We've got we've got all these sectors challenging the challenging the rule, the domination, and the agendas of the ruling class. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. 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 Thank you for the conversations.